Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. And now, for your listening pleasure, it's the Brum Picture Show. Brought to you by Brum Radio. Hello and welcome to the Brum Picture Show on Brum Radio, a weekly film show covering local, independent and world cinema brought to you by Birmingham-based community cinema collective Screen B14. Coming up later in the show today, we'll have reviews of Priscilla and Poor Things, which you might notice, both happen to feature ladies as the lead. So this week, we thought it would be appropriate to talk about some of our favourite female leads, or strong female characters, if you will. We'll also be discussing whether or not the term strong female character is a meaningful or appropriate phrase to use. Spoiler alert, it's not. My name is Paul Vernon, and joining me today, as always, is our very own strong female character, Nadine O'Mahony. <laughs> Say hello, Nadine. Hello. I've never been introduced like that before. Yeah, my name's Nadine. I co-present the Brom Picture Show with Paul. I'm head programmer for Screen B14, community cinema and film collective, and I make my own films myself. Uh, I'm a writer and director on the side. Well, thanks for joining us again, Nadine. Now, regular listeners may remember that we are oft joined by someone called Rory, who seems to have a habit of putting his career before this show. Boo. Boo. And once again, he's not here today because apparently he's too busy making a film or something. Tut, so, tut, tut. I know. So naturally, he's dead to us now. But don't <laughs> worry, we've upgraded to a new improved model. We are honoured to have the CEO, benign dictator and supreme overlord of Screen B14, Mr. Ben Thomas. That's your surname, right? Woo! It is. Yeah, that's my surname. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ben, tell us about yourself. What's it like ruling over us at Screen B14? <laughs> what else do you do? Who are you? Why are you? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's um it's wonderful to be here. It's an honour to make my debut on the Brum Picture Show. As you've already so kindly alluded to, I am the head of Screen B14, which is good fun. It's great fun ruling over all of my <laughs> wonderful South Birmingham subjects. Alongside that, I also help with some filmmaking. So me and Rory actually tend to write together. So we've done a couple of a couple of scripts together and I've also done a bit of assistant directing as well. And I'm a keen film reviewer. So I've covered um, film festivals as a journalist, like documentary and narrative as well. So that's sort of my background in exhibition and a bit of film reviewing as well. Oh, splendid. Well, you sound very qualified to be on this here show. Yeah, but a yes. bit overqualified, bit I'd over- say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. I'm sure you will be a vast improvement on Rory, who we will never see again. So, <laughs> coming up in the show, <laughs> as I said, we will be talking about our favourite female leads from films. But first of all, it's time for our... Look at the news items that have caught our eye this week. So, Ben, as the newbie, would you like to start us off with your with your news item that you were like, hmm, that's a bit of news, isn't it? Yeah, mine mine's quite 
niche and nerdy, but I'll I'll go for it anyway. Um, so I found mine on Film Stories, which is a website run by a guy called Simon Brew, who is a Ooh. friend of uh, Screen B14 and now a friend of the podcast. Um, so the story is basically you've got the BFI player, which is a streaming service by the BFI that kind of specialises in British films, art house films. And thanks to a £1 million donation from the Ugla Family Foundation, I think it is, they're going to be investing in a transformation of the platform, which will rebrand itself as BFI+. Plus. Um, so in America, you, you have stuff like the Criterion Channel, which has a lot of really interesting world art house cinema and our kind of answer to that is the BFI player. I'd watch a lot of stuff on there. You've got like a lot of old European films by Fellini or like whichever um, other name you want to put in there. So I think it's going to be quite interesting because um, I think the platform's really, really good. There's a great selection of films and you have access to a lot of different stuff. But the interface was always a bit naff compared to like um, some of the bigger corporations, so like a Disney Plus or a Netflix. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what this investment does for the kind of like interface and like searching for stuff and, and whether they're able to expand their catalogue as well. Because I think in the article I read, it seemed like they were going to bring in some more features and short films as well. I think that will be a good thing, hopefully, for like British filmmakers as well, that you have a, a bigger, better sort of modern platform to be able to like get your films um, hopefully seen by lots of different people. Um, so I think, yeah, thanks to the Oogler Family Foundation for investing a million in the BFI player. Yeah, thanks, Oogler cool. family. Yeah. <laughs> I might have got that completely wrong. <laughs> and, and people probably aren't interested in that anyway. So. <laughs> that, that, that sounds interesting to me. I lo- you know, I love watching things, and I especially love watching things on platforms. So, yeah. you know, plus. plus. No. So, so that's good. So, Nadine, anything catch your eye this week in the old movie news? Yes, big news for uh, British film fans. The BAFTA nominations have been Ooh. announced. Ooh. Now, I'm not going to read every nomination. I'm going to, you know, just skim through. Ah. But there are some snobs. Ooh. People have been talking about the snobs. So we've got Best Film, Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, which we love, Oppenheimer and Poor Things, which we'll be talking about later in the show. Leading actress, Fantasia Barino, Sandra Hula, Carrie Mulligan, Vivian Opera, who we love, who's just absolute standout in Rye Lane, which we screened last year. Love her. Margot Robbie and Emma Stone. Mm. Where is Lily Gladstone? Where is she? She's not on the leading actress list. Oh. There's been some other snubs as well. No Greta Gerwig for Best Director. No Jeffrey Wright for actor. You know, the snubs go on. Yeah, it's interesting. Has it happened before where... Because um, Lily Gladstone won the Golden Globe, right? Yeah. Has that happened before where someone's won, like, the Golden Globe and then just not got, not even got a nomination for the BAFTA? I mean, I, I guess it must have, but... Yeah, I don't have, like, a list of all the previous winners. But I have to say, there's always a skew in the BAFTA noms towards British films and British directors. So sometimes you'll see people pop up that you won't see pop up in in some of the American awards. So even though it is an indicator of what what we might see in the Oscars, it's not a hard and fast thing. It's more you've got to look at 
the awards build up to the Oscars, all the different awards and kind of almost calculate it from that and see like, okay, this one has had seven wins and this one's had five. You know, for director, we've got Andrew Haig, All of Us Strangers. I'm not expecting to see that at the Oscars, even though it has had a lot of buzz, but that is a British film, but we'll see. Maybe I'll have to eat my words. Zone of Interest, another British director. Oppenheimer, British director. Um, Anatomy of a Fall, European director. And then the only two American films, well, American directors nominated are Alexander Payne and Bradley Cooper. And I don't think Bradley Cooper's going to win. And he was—he felt very snubbed when he didn't win for A Star Is Born. And I think I think we're going to see a, another angry Bradley Cooper, who who I would describe as being aggressively sincere <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my take on but not to say he isn't a great filmmaker mm. or a great actor but i think you know you've got to think dude you're two movies into your directing career how many movies did scorsese make before he won yeah. Ridley Scott still hasn't won an oscar for directing yet so i feel <clears> bad for bradley cooper because i feel like he he Spent all those years like cheering in the Wimbledon crowd, watching Andy Murray to try and uh, try and infiltrate <laughs> the Baftas, and <laughs> he's going to find out whether that <laughs> whether that to all be that honest, hard work is um, paid off. To be honest, he might have better chance at the Baftas than the Oscars. I don't know. I'm just putting that out there. Um, I hope Bradley isn't listening to the show because you know I'd love to work with you, Brad. <laughs> I mean, he definitely is. He emails in every week, and oh, we just no. we just like, I'm oh, just Bradley, moved. come on, <sighs> leave just us alone. My chances with Bradley now. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, listeners, uh, if you've got strong opinions on the BAFTA noms, who's been snobbed, who should have been, um, you know, who should have been nominated, please do email us in at pictureshow at brumradio.com. Yes, please do. Well, that's some interesting news stuff. Um, I suppose the news item that excited me the most, at least, was the fact that apparently the Coen brothers are going to be getting back together. So that's Ooh. nice. Um, so this came out in an interview with Empire magazine, apparently. Ethan Coen was talking about his upcoming solo fictional film debut because he's uh, apparently made a documentary on Jerry Lee Lewis, of all people, which will kind of ties in with our uh, discussion of Priscilla later. Uh, and that documentary was called Trouble in Mind. And I'd say trouble is an understatement <laughs> with that man. But I've not actually seen that. I didn't know that no, existed. Didn't know it existed. But apparently that's what he was doing whilst Joel went off and... Uh, and made his uh, Macbeth uh, adaptation. So yeah, apparently in his interview about the upcoming Driveway Dolls, which is described as a lesbian road movie, he said that Ethan and Joel would be working on something together. Mm. So we get to look forward to something. Vague. So that that is vague, but also nice because um, they are, of course, you know, just one of the greatest partnerships in in cinema, aren't they? Really. Well, I think it's interesting that this news has come hot on the heels of the Safdie brothers breaking off, mm. which suggests to me that there can be only one brother filmmaking duo in Hollywood at a time. Yeah. And now the Safties have, have had to give up the mantle so the Coens can come back. There must be balance in the in the movie sibling yeah, universe apparently. Exactly. But that's very sad news. I didn't know that about the Safties. That's 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 gutting. Yeah, yeah that said, was recently as well, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, they said they'd broken up, which made me question, you know, are they not going to be brothers anymore? I don't know. Did they use that? Did yeah, they, they said they're breaking up. I thought, oh, oh. you know, 
are they divorcing? I don't understand. Like, yeah, they're just not. I think maybe they're going to pursue solo projects too. Yeah, because I mean, uh, Benny Safdie's been doing a lot of acting recently yeah. on his own, but that's all right. That's fine. You can go off and do that. But um, yeah, and then yeah. when that doesn't work out, like the Coens, and they realise, oh, actually. This malarkey is quite hard on your own. Yeah, yeah. They It'll might come crawling back yeah. and be like, "Oh, let's make uncut, uncut gems, gems too." too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love uncut gems. I I do love anxiety dreams of films, <laughs> and that is exactly what that film is. I couldn't uh, get through it. It was too really it was too anxious uh, for me. Oh, so good. Too I'm, a, I'm a big basketball fan as well. So like having Kevin Garnett like on screen just acting. To the heavens, <laughs> an insane crossover I never expected to see. Well, but yeah, yeah, oh, it was all quite insane, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, just that bit when the phone's ringing. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's another Paulism. Uh, that bit where the phone rings. Well, I, I suppose that's 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 all to say on that. Gladiator Two has apparently wrapped filming. Whoop whoop. So that's that's in the can, due yes. to be released on November twenty second. So that's nice. Christopher Nolan apparently doesn't let people go to the toilet, or he doesn't. What? He, he doesn't like people going to the toilet. Just this, in life, just, just in, in general. general, in general. If but he no. sees anyone near the toilets, he's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it. no. But this was apparently this. This came out in the uh, in the press tour. Well, not the, well. I guess the awards season uh, yeah, press tour the, for for the, Oppenheimer. Um, so campaign they call that the campaign. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently Robert Downey Jr. said that Christopher Nolan isn't a fan of when his actors need need to go to the toilet. Like he knows they have to, but he'd rather they did it at appointed times. And apparently Robert Downey Jr. asked Christopher Nolan when he goes, and he said 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Sounds so, like school, doesn't it? So well, you should have gone. You should have gone when we had the break or exactly. on your lunch break. I feel. I feel like. I feel like in a parallel universe, like Chris Nolan is like the strictest supply teacher, isn't he? Like stood in his cardigan, just mm-hmm. being. Like, yeah, very much. So. Well, and Bradley Cooper, who I've already painted as being aggressively sincere, doesn't like people sitting down. He doesn't have chairs on his set. Oh, really? He's like, oh, there are orange crates if you need. Ooh. If you need, if you like, you know. Have a bad back. Please explain orange, as in crates full like of oranges. Crate, like a crate. Yeah, that, a crate, that's a crate, crate of oranges. Well, not with the oranges in them, obviously, Paul. Right, Just okay. Just like a crate. So basically, on some locations, on some sets, they don't have chairs. Sometimes it's not practical, I guess, to have chairs. Yeah. But you can sit on a crate. if, Like, if you're going to sit down... We at least want you to be uncomfortable while you're doing it, basically. I'd say that um, crates are less practical than chairs. Chairs you can stack. Crates you kind of just have to put on top of each other and take up loads of space. Well, you just, just, one, just the one crate. Oh, they have to share this one crate? Well, <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. how they get around it. It's your turn yeah. on the crate. Bradley Cooper says, if you are going to sit down, then you sitting down is meaning that nobody else can sit down. And Chris Nolan has one porter cabin. Yeah. And it's got one toilet in. And he goes, if you're on the toilet, then nobody else can be on the toilet. Doesn't it all sound like a dictatorship? That is how a director should be, I suppose. I don't know if I agree with that as a film director. Uh, I mean, I do let people go to the... You, obviously, you don't want people going to the toilet in the middle of a take. No, there, yeah. are, there are limits. Yeah. But, you know... Just get everyone in adult nappies. If you can hurry... No, oh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> this is uh, why we need unions. 
in no, our I, film industry. Yeah, I suppose. This is what the strikes are all about. <laughs> they just want a chair and a toilet break. Jeez. Oh, uh, goodness. Also, apparently, he, Christopher Nolan doesn't have a phone. But that doesn't surprise me either, I suppose. Uh, yeah, anyway. What does but, he do on the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good question. <laughs> he must just stare into space and, oh and think and about with ideas. Yeah. Yeah, he's just <laughs> so efficient. He hasn't got time. Yeah, yeah. It's just in and out. Job done. You are listening to the Brum Picture Show on Brum Radio, and today we are talking about strong female characters. Now, this phrase, strong female character, is yeah. possibly a little bit questionable. So, Nadine. Take us through why why we shouldn't be saying these yeah, things. because I'm the woman. Because you're the woman. You are our female lady spokesperson. No, I think I was the one that questioned this term, actually, so I think it's fair that I say why. It's not necessarily something that offends me or anything like that, but I just have heard discourse. I watched a Hollywood Report roundtable with some very famous actresses, and they all were sort of bemoaning this trope of the strong female character and they were like, oh, I don't want to see another character described as a strong female character. And what does that mean to be strong? And, you know, I feel like their criticism was that it was um, too one-dimensional, that women can be vulnerable as well, women can be bad, you know. So I think I think some, some actresses have just got, or, or actors, depending on which your preferred term is, have, have got a bit tired with that terminology. I've also mm-hmm. seen some discourse online so uh, Chris Day has written that the strong female character trope often shows us the underlying deficit of respect the character starts with which he's then required to overcome by whatever desperate over-the-top cartoonish means to hand just to bring herself up to the man's level so I think part of the criticism is that these these are not authentic portrayals of women. They're just men in women's clothing, I guess. The idea <laughs> that um, they're women written as if they're men, but they're, they're acted by, by women. And I suppose Ripley might be a good example of that in Alien because that mm-hmm. was a role written originally for a man. Mm. And then they sort of thought, oh, what if we made this a woman? And I don't think they really changed much about that character, certainly not for the first film to make her a woman uh, other than her name I guess her description and her casting but to me it depends on your definition of strong to me when I think of a strong female character I think of one that's well-rounded because most films have male protagonists and they are often flawed and interesting and they have strengths and weaknesses and the women in those films, traditionally, often women have been portrayed as like the wife or the girlfriend or, you know, the femme fatale. And they often don't have as much dimension. So for me, a strong female character would be a strongly written or a well-written female character with dimension. And, you know, somebody who is human that you can relate to and who isn't like an idealised image of a woman. So the entire concept for this episode is is, is slightly it's problematic. Slightly yeah. problematic. <laughs> no, I think it's no, I think it's interesting to talk about. And I think you know, like I said, again, just because some women don't identify with that term doesn't mean that every woman finds it offensive or 
we're over half the population. There are billions of us. So I think it's I think it's interesting to have this conversation, and it, we can all pick characters that we, you know, what do we think constitutes a strong female character? You know, that's interesting. You should talk about the perceived masculinization of women in film because I guess something we haven't really touched on that is a big thing in in film criticism and film theory is the, um, the notion of the final girl in horror. The final girl is like a term that was coined by Carol J. Clover apparently in the in the late 80s uh, to describe the the trend in slasher films of uh, of a final girl being left at the end but part of that she says uh, the final girl is masculinized through what she calls phallic appropriation which 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 means taking up a weapon such as a knife or chainsaw against the killer yeah Um, i'm not sure if i agree with that (laughs) it's interesting actually sort of off topic but sort of related is that Mm. i read that archaeologists have recently starting to rethink this idea that men were the hunters and women (laughs) you know, stayed at home looking after the babies and that they're mm-hmm. actually maybe as many as half or, you know, maybe as as many women went out to hunt as men did. And that's going to completely change ideas that we've had about, you know, human evolution and mm-hmm. and culture and, and sort of male and female roles. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, someone's coming after you big scary dude in a mask you're gonna pick up a weapon <laughs> I know I did when I went to check on my cat which I mentioned the other week uh, my cat made a big crash in the middle of the night and I thought it was being burgled and the first thing I did was pick up a weapon yeah. so it's just what you would do to protect yourself surely surely uh, that darn cat <laughs> <laughs> well there's obviously a lot to discuss uh, on this but we should probably move on to yeah. um, to actually the talking films. about our film choices today. So I think, first of all, we will have Ben, I believe. Ben. I'm going to go with Broadcast News, which oh, is directed by James L. Brooks. So for some reason, and I think it's just because I, I'm very into my, like, reporting journalism type stuff, the two I was kind of considering were Broadcast News and His Girl Friday, both of which the kind of like strong female characters with the asterisk of all the things that we've just spoken mm-hmm. about. Um, in broadcast news, it's uh, TV producer Jane Craig, who is played by the wonderful Holly Hunter. I think she's incredibly underrated as an actress, mm. and um, she's one of my my personal favourites. So she plays Jane Craig, who is like an exceptionally talented, very like high standard slightly workaholic but then as the story goes on she develops what I guess is what you would call like a sort of unconventional love triangle with the presenter who's brought in called Tom Grunick who's played by William Hurt and then Aaron Altman who is played by Albert Brooks but I just think it's a brilliant film it's it's a really like razor sharp script there's lots of really funny lines where often Jane Craig is kind of the 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 winner in those interactions I suppose and yeah there's just some there's some really great lines in it so one that I picked out which kind of just sums up Jane Craig as a character is someone called Paul who's like part of the newsroom basically goes it must be nice to always believe you know better to think you're always the smartest person in the room and she replies no it's awful Sounds um, like the conversations I have with Paul on Brum Radio. <laughs> I, I, can <laughs> def- I can definitely believe that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I thought that was a that that for me um, was a film that instantly came to mind. And then yeah, I kind of like considered His Girl Friday for sort of similar reasons, where you've got potentially 
the only character ever to go toe-to-toe with Cary Grant, which is Hildy Johnson. And again, like, sort of similar sorts of reasons, just, like, incredible, like, wit and determination to kind of, like, uncover the truth and to maintain high standards. And, like, yeah, I, I thought th- those examples were ones that came to mind. Um, um, what was what was your definition of strong then? Why? How are those women strong, in, in your opinion? I'd say, I'd say there's definitely... Um, they're, they're not like they're not controlled or manipulated so um i think they both sort of like hold their own in in quite male dominated spaces mm-hmm. kind um, of strong willed sort of headstrong maybe. yeah i'd probably say those examples are strong willed it's always it's always really hard to describe because i think there are lots of different aspects of it and i'm sure we'll like touch on other ones later on i think for me it was like yeah it was the probably the strong willed aspect and it was like within the scripts themselves like the female characters aren't a part, like they are the central part of the story for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones who are like actively like seeking to like find solutions or to problem solve rather than kind of just being an accessory to what's happening on the screen or like this male character's going here. So the female character like by definition just goes along with them. Mm. And I think particularly in the case of His Girl Friday, I think it is quite ahead of its time because it came out in 1940 and it has the the obvious problems that you'd have um, in a film that would come out in 1940. But um, I think Rosalind Russell was absolutely fantastic in the role and absolutely kills it with the kind of like charisma on screen and like being able to deliver those like ferociously fast um, lines of dialogue that Howard Hawks was kind of like driving for. Like I think he was trying to create like the quickest speaking um, film of all time at that point. Hmm. And she not only nails the performance, but kind of like almost adds more to it where um, she comes very much alive. And I find the same with Holly Hunter in Broadcast News, where it's like when she's on screen, there is like no ambiguity as to who like the heart and driving force of the film is. And part of that is the performance, but part of that is just the way the film's constructed as well. And mm-hmm. again, like Broadcast News has its has its problems, mm-hmm. um, has its flaws, and I, I definitely not every scene would be maybe how it'd be made now, but I think there are there are like amazing scenes and, and like quips and things like that that I I really enjoyed. Yeah, that's it is that, re- it's a really good, good film. I I really like it. Like like I said, it's not perfect but it's um it's really good fun and like great performances, great script. So mm-hmm. yeah, go and check it out. I <laughs> think if you're gonna analyze any film from the past though, you've got to have think of it in the context of those times. Like if we look at films from the nineteen forties, there were actually a lot of strong female characters then because they wanted women in the workplace. Mm. Um so you have films like Laura and you have films a lot of the film noir, um, you have women going into work and it being seen positively mm. um mildred pierce which i've mentioned before yeah i considered um, like all about eve like that yeah sort of film but um but that was kind of we might say oh it was the past and and women were treated differently then but like i say there was a push they wanted women in the workplace while the men were away when mm. the men came back it might have been a different story but you know so it's interesting just to see how culture ebbs and flows and what you know what is considered acceptable at one point what is considered strong and and sort of positive traits for a woman you know that can change as well so yeah I think you always have to kind of view things in the context of you know you know at the time was it pushing boundaries or was it kind of just you know the status quo Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so remember, as righteous as you think you are now, in 20 years, people are going to look back on you and think you're evil. So. Oh, definitely with you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. Surely they'll like the Brum Picture Show in 20 years. Oh, that Brum Picture Show, it's problematic, isn't it? It was all right at the time, but... <laughs> I mean, there's only one woman on it. That's pretty problematic. <laughs> That's I think true. we need a bit of a Smurfette syndrome going on. I know. Need some... Need some more women. Get some more ladies in here. That's yeah. right. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah, especially. Am I talking about it? <laughs> but you know what? I think it's always interesting to just to hear men's, like, again, what is a woman in a film that men admire? Mm. I think that's interesting. This is the Brum Picture Show on Brum Radio, and we have been discussing strong female characters in inverted commas. We've just heard Ben discussing broadcast news, and now it is time for Nadine's pick. Well, mine isn't as nuanced as Ben's. I've gone for your stereotypical butt-kicking action heroine. My pick is Beatrice Kiddo from the Kill Bill films. I say films, plural. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Quentin. They're two films. They're two quite different films. They are, actually, aren't they? Um, But Kill Bill Volume 1 would be my choice. Mm -hmm. I love this film. I love this character. I'm a woman. I'm allowed to identify with a woman who is strong. It doesn't make me more masculine or manly. And like Quentin said, it's so much fun, Jan. (laughs) It's just, yeah, like, you know, men get to have their fantasy figure heroes, you know, like, say, their knights and their terminators and what have you. So, like, why why can't we have the equivalent? I grew up loving a lot of Hong Kong action movies. I had a friend from China. I used to tape Channel 4 had a season of Chinese and Hong Kong films late at night. Um, I couldn't stay up that late, so I'd record them overnight and share them with my friend. And quite a lot of those films from the 80s and the 90s in Hong Kong had, you know, heroines that that kicked butt and, and you know, could, could do um, kung fu and other martial arts. And I think of characters from, like, The Legend of Fang Sai-yuk. And even if you look at something like Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, interestingly, in a lot of those films there was a lot of cross-dressing where the woman would often just like put on a hat and plait her hair because because in you know certain periods of Chinese history men had long hair so if a woman just kind of put a hat on and plaited her hair people would just assume she's a man (laughs) in these films (laughs) at least um so that kind of ties into that kind of you know masculine image of sort of um, but often, you know, these men were shamed when they found out, oh, it's a, it was a woman that kicked my butt. <laughs> like, yeah, I, you know, is it a perfect film? No. Does Quentin Tarantino have the credentials to, to be a feminist filmmaker? His relationship to Harvey Weinstein would, would put that in question for a lot of people. And I know there were some issues, you know, Uma came out a few years ago and talked about some of the issues she had on this film, the accident she got into, the car accident she got into in, in Kill Bill Volume 2 and, you know, the unpleasant sort of interaction she had with with Harvey. But I don't think, you know, she was a huge part of, of making that film. She didn't write the script, but she developed the story with Quentin when they were working on Pulp Fiction. The film was written for her. 
Um, she put so much work into it. You know, she wasn't a skilled martial artist, I think, before she started this film. She did a lot of training. She had to do a lot of focus. You know, her martial arts trainer said, you know, how amazing she was, how, how she had this really sh strong spirit. You know, she wasn't just going through the motions. She was kind of living it. And, yeah, I just, I just enjoyed it. And, you know, when I was young, I think there was a part of me that fancied going to um, China to some you know, monastery and sort of uh, learning martial arts until I realised you had to get up at like six o'clock in the morning and eat beans and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I realised there was a lot more to it, um, but I kind of wanted to go to a Shaolin temple and, and learn martial arts and live live that life and... Um, Murder a load of men. No, not necessarily. Just learn how to. Yeah, yeah, yeah just learn yeah, how to. It, if yeah. you know, needed. Yeah. Just it's you know, I, it's just there. If if, and you know, yeah, like I said, there's cliched aspects to it. Interestingly, you know, Quentin always worked with a female editor, and that's something I'm going to bring up later. Is mm -hmm. you know, okay, he's a male director, but he developed this story with Uma, who's the star. The film was edited by a woman, so it's not... You can't say that it's solely his point of view. Yes, he wrote it and directed it, but there were women involved in the development of that story. So I think that's got to have an influence, and I'm sure if there were things in there that Uma didn't like, I'm sure she would have said something. Maybe she wouldn't have, I don't know. And there's loads of women in it. We've got Lucy Liu, we've got Vivica A. Fox, we've got Daryl Hannah. So we... It skews that idea of like having the one woman character that has to represent all women. We get to see different different types of women. We get to see more evil women. Like like Daryl Hannah's character is just just evil, just straight up evil. There's not much, you know. She doesn't have a lot of um, facets to her, but that's why we love that character because she's just so, you know, over the top bad. And sometimes women, you know, I think a lot of actors enjoy playing those types of characters where they just get to be baddies and, mm -hmm. and sort of not have to worry about sort of, you know, morality and things like that. So, yeah, and, and again, Tarantino has worked on other films. You know, I think Jackie Brown is a strong female character and that was written specifically for Pam Greer, who I saw at the Mac last year. She's oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, she's a strong female character in I, real life. I was also there. Oh, my gosh. I don't know I if did. I knew that you were there. No, but. I was there with my mum. Oh, that's mad. <laughs> that's cool that Pam Greer was in Birmingham, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was pretty awesome. It was so cool. Um, but, yeah, for me, I enjoy, I enjoy action films. I always have, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. My grandmother who's from Jamaica, who, you know, lived to be in her 80s, loved The Terminator. She loved Arnie. She loved action films. Mm -hmm. I think women are allowed to like action movies too. We're allowed to like horror movies. We're allowed to like different genres. And we want to see ourselves in those lead roles. And we want to see, want to see all different types of women doing all different types of things. Don't put us in a box. Isn't, isn't that the message of Barbie? Don't put women in a box. That's, that's good advice, I say. It's frowned upon. Yeah, I do love Kill Bill. It's mad to think that's... It's 20 years. 20 years old yeah. this year. That's I am, bonkers. I'm super disappointed it wasn't his 10th film because there was rumours that he would do, you know, Kill Bill 3 and Zendaya might have been 
you know, right, the yeah. daughter of Vivica Fox's well, character. Well, this this self-imposed rule of Tarantino. Oh. This is a tangent we shouldn't get into. But he's got he's gone and he's gone and said, oh, oh, you know, filmmakers should make ten films and then stop. And it's just this arbitrary rule that is set himself. But he's also we'll talked see. about all these projects that he wanted to do that now he just can't do because because of of, of this rule. Like he was going to be doing a Star Trek film at one point, and yeah. now he's not doing that because he doesn't want a Star Trek film to be his last film. I apparently. knew that and was I'm just never like, going to happen. Well, yeah, I feel like not. was that a bit of I want some development money because I don't <laughs> think there was no to me there was no I thought oh, it would have been amazing to see a Tarantino Star yeah. Trek movie, but I just. From when it was announced, I thought, this is never going to happen. This no. isn't going to be his 10th film. I mean, it's quite an unfathomable thing, isn't it, really? Like Star, yeah. Star Trek and Tarantino. Just, Star Trek with guns uh, and yeah, pie and, and <laughs> <I'd> <laughs> kahuna burgers. Yeah, I'd love to see it, but I just I can't really imagine what that would be. But yeah, silly Tarantino, but, um, yeah, but, but equally. But, you yeah. know, Uma Thurman's great. She you know, is. Watch, watch it for Uma. She's fantastic. If, you, if you're not a fan of Tarantino, you can at least appreciate the work Uma mm. and her, you know, fellow cast members put in. I thought, you know, iconic. Iconic indeed. Well, thanks for that, Nadine. Um, well, you've gone for kind of action there, and I'm a horror boy, aren't I? Uh, so I'm going to go for something from one of my favourite horror films. And I was talking earlier about the the notion of the final girl in horror films. And this has been a, a subject of discussion in, in, in film academia for some time because a lot of the representations of these final girls in films have been still quite uh, problematic and still with women just waiting for a man to come along and save them. And in fact, as Nadine mentioned earlier, it was with the advent of people like Ellen Ripley from the Alien franchise where this kind of starts to change a little bit because Ellen Ripley's she just saves herself like and she saves a, the cat. And she saves, most importantly, the cat. Yeah. What's his Which name? Jonesy. The, yeah, that's Jonesy. the name of a screenwriting book, apparently. It's a tip you give people. If you want to make your character likeable, make them do something nice like saving a cat. Yeah. And then people will find them endearing. There you go. I wish I knew that before I wrote my short <laughs> <laughs> Kill the dog. I think that's the opposite. Well, yeah. I always thought in The Beguiled, um, he throws a tortoise. And I think that's like the, the exact opposite of Save the Cat. Because yeah. you just lose all sympathy for his character when he throws that tortoise across the room. Yeah, yeah he's like actually a really nice guy. But yeah, yeah just, you're like, uh, no. Uh, no chance. You can't the be, tortoise. You can't be throrying tortoises around. That is no, outrageous. that is not it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, so the the notion of the final girl is definitely something that's evolved and we could spend a whole episode talking about the, the nuances of that of that concept but something that seems to be a trend in recent years is a, a variation of this which I've seen described online as instead of the final girl it's the, the good for her girl and also yeah. yes <laughs> like where these uh these women, uh, female characters, are set up to be the, the the final girl, but then that's kind of twisted, and they turned into the the killer themselves. So, for example, Pearl Pearl is definitely a fine example in that she's definitely uh, the heroine of that film. But uh, whether Which or not, not she's whether or not she's a good person, <laughs> that's that's somewhat that's somewhat questionable. But anyway, the, my example is from one of my favourite films, Evs, to be honest, and it is Danny from Midsummer which is, of course, the Ari Aster uh, folk horror film, which is uh, described by the director himself as a, as a, a mixture between a, a folk horror film and a breakup movie, romantic comedy. I just think Florence Pugh's performance in it is just 
incredible um and that her arc is just fascinating to watch basically the film is about uh, her having this tragedy and then she is taken along to a well basically accidentally a swedish cult and it's a festival that happens in sweden that her boyfriend was going to be going to and it's a festival that happens once every 90 years and it's all very Be- uh, yeah. beautiful scenery yeah beautiful beautiful scenery, beautiful scenery um, but some um, <laughs> some pretty harrowing stuff goes on there yeah she finds herself in this in this ridiculous situation and at first she seems to follow the the tropes of the final girl in that she's removed socially from the people that she's with and her friends seem to be kind of the embodiment of of, of toxic masculinity in a way and also another thing that's common in the final girl thing is that there seem to be this kind of source of, of moral purity you know one of the rules in horror films is like you don't have sex or you get killed kind of thing and this is this is this is a common theme and she is kind of distant from the from the hedonistic behavior of the rest of the rest of the group and and she's also the one that's most aware that perhaps something's not quite right with this weird little weird little cult going on she's the one that's just like ah maybe we shouldn't be here and they're like no it's fine it's fine and then and then yeah look how all that winds up but the point is it's like beyond the kind of folk horror aesthetic of it all it's all just it's actually a much more subtle look at emotional abuse and it's it's quite a yeah, it is quite realistic in that, yeah, her boyfriend isn't a monster, but he's just, he is terrible. Bad. A, a bad, useless, <laughs> a, bad, a bad, bad boyfriend. But then we see her finally, just over the course of the film, gain her own independence and find her new her new family with this, with this Swedish cult. And um, by the end of it, she is victorious in a possibly morally dubious way. And it's just like, it's just an incredible journey. You could argue that the arc that her character takes maybe isn't proportionate to what he did in the film because um, I don't know whether I should... Uh, if, you've, if you've not seen Midsommar, watch it now. Pause this, watch it now, and then come back. But yeah, she sets her boyfriend on fire. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, good So good for her. Um, but it's just such a... The, the final act of that film... Everything about it is just so powerful with the music and just like, yeah, just seeing her emotional release. And it's just, it's one of my favorite, (laughs) favorite moments in cinema ever. Like incredible music by um, Bobby Krillick, also known as the the Hacks and Cloak. You should definitely check out his music. And yeah, it's uh, (laughs) it's an interesting one uh, for sure. Um, have you guys seen Midsommar? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. all you have to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you about the about the third third act. It's like one thing after another mm-hmm. of like, oh, it's going there now. Oh, it's now it's going there, yeah. and now it's going there. Yeah, and yeah. now we're in this strange sort of teepee thing, mm-hmm. and um, my brain is on the floor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'd love to see. What happened next? No, no. Midwinter. What? Yeah. What? What was uh, Danny's life like after that? Yeah. Yeah. It was May Queen, obviously. Yeah, May yeah, Queen yeah. It's just yeah, just May Day every single day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like Oxfordshire, really. They're always burning people alive in <laughs> Oxfordshire. <I> mean... <laughs> Sorry to our, our many listeners in Oxfordshire. That's okay. I, uh, my parents live in Oxfordshire. Oh, right. <laughs> I, can get, I can get away with that. You can't, but Sorry. I can. Sorry, Ben's parents. Which is a privilege, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, yeah. 
it's a wonderful film that I could talk about for ages. So, but yeah, just, just watch it. But I think we've discussed... <laughs> well, we've definitely not even begun to scratch, this, scrape the uh, surface of, uh, of this subject. We've had a go, haven't we? We've, we've had, had a go. go. So, <laughs> so, yeah. If you have any suggestions for your quote-unquote strong female characters, your, you know, your favourite female characters in films, then yeah. do not hesitate to email us at pictureshow at brumradio.com. Or you can message us on our socials at screenb14. Use the hashtag brumpictureshow. You are listening to the Brum Picture Show on Brum Radio. We have been discussing our favourite strong female characters, in inverted commas. And now we are going to be talking about... Priscilla. Ooh. So, Nadine, I believe you have much to say on this subject. So, um, Yeah, I was really looking forward to this film. I've seen it twice now. I really love it. We both have seen Priscilla and Poor Things very close together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the idea of the strong female character theme came from because, you know, they're both very different depictions of women as protagonists. Uh, they're both sort of dealing with feminist themes. Priscilla is a really nice example of a strong female character that doesn't fall into those supposed masculine stereotypes. She's a very quiet um, young woman. She doesn't shout, she doesn't scream, she doesn't pick up any weapons, I don't think. Does she? No, I don't think she does. There's a pillow at one point. There's a pillow. But even that's quite a feminine weapon, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get softer than a pillow, can you? That's true. Um, Not many pillow point muggings in the streets these days. That that would be a very different film if it was pillows. (laughs) But, But it's still about a woman sort of... You know, or a girl, she's she's 14 at the beginning of the film, finding her strength, stepping into her own, becoming independent, finding self-actualization. And I think it's what I like about it. It's a film. It's based on uh, Priscilla Presley's memoirs. It's uh, by Sophia Coppola, who's a writer director, who's also a woman. And so I thought it was a very different take on, you know, had a man directed that film or, or anybody else. You know, Sophia Coppola has a very distinct view she has a she has a a very strong aesthetic and she has a style of filmmaking that isn't for everybody um you know her films are often quite slow quite dreamlike you know very strong visuals you know less dialogue um so I was just really interesting to see this particular woman's take on another woman's story and and told very much from the Priscilla Prezi character's point of view and it's an interesting sort of end piece, I guess, to Baz Luhrmann's Alvis, mm. which really skates over Priscilla as a character, but also the age gap and the power dynamics in that relationship. And I was a bit worried about this film. I was like, are we going to address it? Is it, you know, how are we going to frame this? And I think Sophia did such an amazing job. It wasn't a heavy-handed approach. I don't think you could call it pandering, but I certainly walked away from it, you know, seeing the dynamics were off in this relationship. He may have been the biggest rock star at the time probably still now one of the you know biggest most iconic rock stars and she may have you know had all this money and all this fame and all the all these things that we see as positive but you can see very clearly um she was unhappy it was a gilded cage again another theme that often comes up in Sophia's films and you 
completely agree with her. I think walking mm. away and doing and doing what she does in the film and mm-hmm. and 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 you do think good for her, mm. you know. But I think it was very interesting. Alvis wasn't portrayed as a monster. I know Lisa Marie, his daughter, wrote a letter to Sophia before the film came out. She'd read a, a version of the script and she was like. I don't agree with this. You, you show my dad as a monster and all this stuff. I don't think that's a fair assessment of it. I think he's shown as very flawed. He's a human. It's not his story, though. Mm. He's a character in the story. He's an important character in the story. It is about their relationship, but it's definitely from Priscilla's perspective. And I know that she based her script, Sophia Coppola based the script on Priscilla's Presley's memoirs. There are other memoirs that have come out and got a different side of that story and said it didn't happen like this. She's focused on, you know, Priscilla was a producer as well mm. on this film. And so it's definitely, I really felt, I understood it from her character's perspective. I understood why she would fall in love with Alvis or or become overwhelmed by him. And, and I understood why she'd be dazzled by him and why she'd want to run off to Graceland with him. But then I also understood why that soured and, and how um, it wasn't perhaps what she had hoped it would be. And I understood why she walked away in the end. And I really loved that Sophia took us on that journey, you know, through Priscilla's eyes. We still see the signs early on. We still see, oh, something isn't quite right there in a way that I don't think, you know, Baz Luhrmann or, or some of the other portrayals of Alvis had shown. Mm. I think you can see early on that he's, at, at the very least, inappropriate with her, mm. even if he doesn't cross certain lines. But I, like I said, I, I really like that we see it through her perspective. And, and in that way, you really understand her journey and you understand it from her point of view. And I think she just did that so deftly, so delicately, which is her style of filmmaking. And I really enjoyed seeing, you know, a film that deals with feminist themes from a woman, you know, about a woman, which might be something that comes up. We talk about the next film, which also has some feminist themes as well. But you went to see it as well. Um, Paul, what were your thoughts? Yeah, um, I thought it was very good. I must say I did find it quite an uncomfortable watch. And I thought it was a really interesting decision casting-wise in that whilst this this film takes place over quite a long period of time, Priscilla still appears to be 14 years old throughout the entire film. So even when the age gap becomes less creepy, one might say, you're still seeing her as a young girl throughout the whole film and I thought that was quite an effective way of going about it because it is a subtle way of, of just going hmm so even though she's older now this is still there's still an imbalance of power here and it's still it's a little bit dodgy isn't well, it? Well I think that's the so, genius you know, because she mm. doesn't spell it out for you yeah. in the way that you know perhaps a less confident filmmaker might say this is wrong mm-hmm. underlined yeah yeah um, it's not if you want to see a dramatic film this film if, you know maybe if I directed it it would have been a lot more dramatic and a lot more you know screaming and shouting and whatever mm. uh, maybe that would have been going too far it doesn't do that it's very subtle but what she does do she doesn't like I say spill it out for you but Jacob Lordy is 6'5". I think Kaylee um, Spaney, who plays Priscilla, is 4'7 or something. And much bigger height difference than in real life between Alvis and Priscilla, which I think there's mm. about five inches or something between them. So I think that is a choice. So she does it visually. She doesn't say, mm. she doesn't come out and, and say in, in big capital letters, mm. you see it. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. And so I think that discomfort that you're feeling, I think that's, 
probably intentional or I think that's mm-hmm. the effect of it, hopefully. Um, other people, again, you know, if you're a big massive Alvis fan, you might come a- away from this film and thinking, oh, it wasn't that bad. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that is the the strength of her her filmmaking and the way she tells the film. Mm. And I think, yeah, it, it's shown visually and I think it's fair to feel uncomfortable. And I reflected on mm. some of my own relationships and things like that after watching the film and I could see similarities and things. So I think I I, I think it's really interesting, the choices that she made. Mm. And I think, like I said, they're not the obvious choices mm. and they're not the biggest, boldest choices mm-hmm. But I think that takes a certain strength myself to hold to hold back, to be yeah, more yeah. reserved with something and to sort of not... I think that's a lot of films get criticised, a lot of feminist films get criticised for being pandering mm. and to being too on the nose and to being like, you know, this is wrong yeah, and, yeah. and everyone's like, what, duh. Mm. I don't think this film does that and I think it's it's all the smarter for doing it the way it does. Certainly, and I do, I do agree with you about it being so effectively subtle and there's there's lots of, there's loads of lovely little bits of visual storytelling so there's like there's just early on in the film she just looks at a poster that's um a poster on uh, on Elvis's wall and then she just she's just like holding her hips and just, like she's comparing her own figure to the figure mm. of this woman on 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 this poster on Elvis's wall and there's also just a shot of her putting on when she's about to go into labor oh with Lisa gosh, Marie yeah. and there's just this shot of her putting on her her eyelashes her ready eyelashes, uh, yeah, yeah ready for the media and that's you know that just says all it does about like you know the importance yeah. of her, uh, her having to keep up her appearances and the just the control that she's under and that is just shown in this in this one little shot and not to I don't know well you know where the film goes but um there's just the there's this bit towards the end where she's dyed her hair back to its original yeah. color and that says everything about where she's at mentally and that's yeah. none of that is none of that is is spelt out for you it's just like you you see that change in her hair color and you just go ah it's and she c- it's wears coming. trousers at the end. Yes, that was something yes. Sophia pointed out. She goes at the last scene when she, when she's walking away, she's wearing trousers, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thought was interesting because I I expected that for Barbie because they go on about the yellow dress she wears at the end. And I'm mm. like, oh, I would have put her in a suit or something. But right. yeah, yeah. I, so I think that was one. That's one aspect of the film, and a lot of these things are based on Priscilla's own recollections, like the mm-hmm. eyelashes and so on. She did say that Alvis was very particular about the way she dressed and she liked a, a one dress and he said it doesn't suit you. Um, she said he was particular about his own dress and he always dressed up as well. Mm. But I think, you know, there is obviously a controlling aspect to that. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I, I love... I love that she shows it visually so we can sort of absorb it ourselves and make up our own mind and she doesn't have a character come in and go, you know that's controlling, don't you? Like, yeah. oh my goodness, like, yeah, exactly. you know, oh, you're having to put your eyelashes on while you're in labour. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we can see it. We don't need to, to be told it. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah, very effective way of, of going about it. And things. I liked them. Um, I did have uh, one of our mutual friends reviewed it. They didn't enjoy it. They felt it very repetitive. Again, it's Sophia Coppola. That's part of her, you know, that hypnotic style, Mm -hmm. that dreamlike style. That's part of why I love her filmmaking when it when it works. And I think this is one of her better films. But they complained about like all the shots of her feet and things like that. But I think that's part of the storytelling. The first shot, you know, she's barefoot, almost like a child walking on this carpet. Mm -hmm. We see a shot of her in stilettos uh, later on walking on the carpet, but. 
the shoes just seem slightly too big, as if, you know, she's trying to be this woman because, you know, Alvis, part of, you know, Alvis wants her to look grown up, even though she's she's a lot younger than him. I guess he wants it to look less creepy, mm. but it kind of makes it more creepy mm-hmm. that she's like this doll sort of dressed up with this big hair and these big shoes to kind of, to, to make her look more adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but the shoes seem just slightly too big. How did, um, um, how did Sophia Coppola end up getting, like, attached to the project? Do you know that? Because I'd be interested to, to know if, like, her style as, like, previously demonstrated was something that, like, Priscilla wanted as a part of the aesthetic. That, I don't I, You might not have the answer, but... Just from interviews that I've seen, Priscilla has said she's the only person that could have done this. Yeah, and I, I kind of got that impression from the way you were speaking about I it. Th- I think she had to be really delicate with this because, you know, Priscilla is a producer on it and she's very philosophical about her relationship with Elvis. You know, she does... She obviously walked away. She obviously was unhappy in the relationship, but she... You know, she made Graceland what it is. Um, It was losing money and she turned it into this business and she's kept his memory alive in many ways. And, you know, as much as she has mentioned some of these negative things, I think she's also, I think she does still romanticise that relationship. And she she, she does say he was vulnerable and and there were all these things going on with him. And um, so I think you've got to be, can you imagine the sort of delicate balancing act Mm. you've got this producer who's the person the the story's all about it's based on their memoir you've got your own point of view even even you know Sophia Coppola saying can you imagine sending your child after sort of Graceland to live with Elvis Mm. Um, but she doesn't impose that on the story it's still there you can still you know she's not glossing over it Mm. as I think a lesser filmmaker might have done but she's just presenting it for you to sort of absorb. So I think I think Priscilla herself must have, you know, she's seen the film and she said, you know, she cried, but she, she's been given lots of positive sort of praise about the film. So I think, yeah, I, I don't know if I could have done that. I don't know how I would mm. have done that. You know, how would I have balanced, you know, this woman in her 70s and she's got her perspective on it and she's producing the film and it's about her, but... You know, it's a different time period. I've got my own point of view. So I think she she did an amazing job. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't think of a huge list of, of filmmakers who could have done done that as, as well. I'd love I, to I'm show a, it at Screen B14 because it's only on, it is on at the multiplexes, but it only has two showings. There we go. We'll see, we'll see if it gets a Blu-ray release. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of um, Sophia Coppola and I, I'm a huge fan of, like, kind of what Nadine was talking about, which is the sort of restrained filmmaking where mm. it's not kind of kind of what we'd already or already said really it's not like smacking you over the head with a moral judgment but it's yeah, kind yeah. of um leaving a sort of like maybe slightly at times meandering story but allowing you to sort of sift through the information and and to to almost read in your own experience of power dynamics and mm-hmm. your own interpretation of it and yeah i think it, it sounds very interesting so I'll, I'll definitely check it out and um Give it a watch. Yeah, but, but as you say, yeah, get in there quick because it's had bafflingly few screenings, which I just I don't know, understand it's, really. It's like the news, so it's like Sophia Coppola is a, you know, she's still a draw, I think, as a, as a, as a yeah. filmmaker. So at our local multiplex, it's only had one or two screenings a day. Yeah. Um, whereas our next film, which I consider a much more niche, niche and off the wall thing has had uh, had a had a screening every hour which i'm not yeah. complaining about i'm just saying they they both should have had that many it's just like yeah. it's it seems quite arbitrary what um what some what the multiplexes decide to 
to focus on. It's just really confusing. Like, and you know, and especially seems as you know, Priscilla. It's you know, it's a film about it's a film about Elvis and Priscilla. That's that's surely that is you know, box office gold isn't it like i don't, I don't know. know maybe it's too it's maybe it's too restrained yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe but yeah. yeah but it's yeah a, a very good very subtle film um yes and it'll be coming out on movie soon so if you miss it at the cinemas you will be able to see it on movie so i do recommend it yeah. if, if you like that slightly gentler sort of dreamlike film So now for our next film, or Things, the new film from Yorgos Lanthimos, of course, of The Favourite and Killing of a Sacred Deer and Dogtooth fame. The Lobster. And The Lobster, of course. So, Ben, I believe you saw this yesterday. Yeah, I so. did. So, like, on on what you were saying, so I, I work in a cinema, and there's been a couple of films recently where, for whatever reason, like, it just brought, like, it's a, it's a really niche, like, quite graphic film. Mm. But for some reason, a couple of films recently have just branched into audiences that you just would not expect Mm -hmm. them to be watching it. So the first one, like, more recently was Saltburn. Yes. Where I I sort of had, like, elderly couples coming up and going, (laughs) oh, I'll have two tickets for Saltburn. And I'm like, you do know what what this is. (laughs) Um, Because they were almost, like, coming up to me and and asking for, like, two tickets for the Downton Abbey movie or, like, the book club or something (laughs) like that. And, like, saying it in that sort of way. And it's been, like, in a weird way, sort of similar with Poor Things, where I don't know um whether um it's made it on radio too or like um i th- must have graham norton must be involved in this yeah. maybe it's emma, emma stone stone or and mark and uh, mark ruffalo's in it of course maybe that's a, a big part of yeah it, you know but it's, been, Willem Dafoe, it's been an, it's been another film where it's been relatively popular given what the film is about which mm-hmm. I'll kind of get to in a sec but yeah like another really strange one where we've had like elderly couples or like people who typically wouldn't go for this sort of film that for some reason for whatever reason have found something in the marketing campaigns that they were like oh yes this looks amazing so to the film um it's set in Victorian London and in Glasgow I think to be no 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 well that's the thing uh, is it the book, the book is set oh, in Glasgow it? But it's but it London is. in the film. Is it? Yeah, oh, yeah. But yeah. he's from Glasgow. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But Willem Dafoe just yeah. does his okay. weird generic Scottish accent. Yeah. He, does, he does basically. He does his accent from the lighthouse, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind of you're not quite sure, but yeah, I think it's London in the film. I believe because I think he he transplanted the the okay. setting because that's the thing. That's one of the things about it is that. It, it does deviate from the book somewhat, so it's yeah. based on a book by Alistair Gray, and it is yeah famously set in Glasgow, and um, uh, it's uh, got a lot about Glaswegian identity. And this kind of this takes place in London, but it's like it's not a real London. It it all takes place in this kind of it's like fairy tale, yeah, like fairy tale, steampunk yeah. London, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, carry on, Ben. No, that's all right. Um, so, well, it, it starts with like this sort of image of of. Emma Stone's character jumping off off Tower Bridge um, into the river and she's pregnant and she is then found in the water by Godwin Baxter who's played by Willem Dafoe and he's sort of like a slightly mad scientist type character. <laughs> slightly. Slightly <laughs> mad scientist. I'm not, uh, very mad scientist. Mm-hmm. And he's then joined by an assistant called Max McCandles, who's played by Rami Youssef, um, who's brilliant in the role as well. And he basically devises a way of cutting the baby 
out of the dead woman's body and then transplanting the baby's brain into the woman's brain. As you do. As you do in a very normal, conventional premise um, <laughs> that you always get in Yorgos Lanthimos films. <laughs> um, so it basically means that Emma Stone is reanimated as Bella Baxter. An adult woman with a baby an brain. An adult woman basically. with a baby brain. And I think it's explained in the film that the her brain then accelerates quicker than a normal brain would I believe. With no real explanation of With why. With no real explanation of <laughs> why. <laughs> okay. There's no real yeah. film. Yeah. I, if think you want, uh, I think maybe part of it is to make it less creepy in what happens next because yeah, to um, think if she was a baby that whole time or even like a child. Yeah. So yeah. maybe I feel like it does fall into the born sexy yesterday trope, which mm. is this idea of like, you know, a woman who's like an adult woman and she's very attractive but she's completely naive mm -hmm. and a man has to come along and teach her the ways of the world mm. and it does subvert that to some degree but it's definitely in that trope mm -hmm. and I think for some people just that concept was too much and was like no thanks mm -hmm. yeah so basically after the transplant happens she's an adult woman with a baby's brain or an infant's brain and the first part of the film is her kind of like learning motor skills and shouting random words and <laughs> discovering all sorts of other things mm. um and furious jumping <laughs> um and then kind of without spoiling the rest of the film she mm. sort of goes on a journey mm -hmm. and it, it, I guess it's slightly like a coming-of-age film, but it's also not. And I think there's probably like a key line quite early on where Max McCandles, the assistant, decides that he wants to marry Bella. And he is speaking to Godwin. And um, I think Godwin basically says something along the lines of there's like one condition. And then Max McCandles jumps in and goes that she desires it too. And um, <laughs> which yeah. yeah, and then and then Goblin Baxter replies uh, something along the lines I can't remember exactly. Oh, two no, conditions, she, <laughs> two, yeah, two conditions. Then that she stays here essentially, mm. and that for me kind of like frames a lot of what happens, which is men desiring something mm -hmm. and being pretty much unconcerned whether the other person desires it too, mm -hmm. whether they're even capable of understanding what desire is at that point. Mm. Um, so that, that for me was like a kind of key point that frames the rest of the film without spoiling the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mark Ruffalo turns up and then... Uh, oh, and then, oh, just, yeah. just shout Yeah, that's out. the most important. Like, Mark Ruffalo is Shout just, out to Mark Ruffalo. Uh, he's having so much fun in he's this film. He's absolutely... Yeah, yeah. the scenery and that accent, but um, it's, so, it's so fun to see him... Out of the shackles of Marvel, yeah, absolutely. and actually just playing a, a crazy character, it's and so, just—it's so bizarre. He's almost playing like a really like sort of horrible, like perverted Blackadder character. <laughs> yes, yeah, the accents are amazing. Um, mm -hmm. I think a, that's why they put it in a fantasy realm because they, they heard the accents and they're like, no one's going <laughs> to yeah, buy this. This is, not, this is not reality. It was meant to be directed by Ken Loach initially, but they had to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you imagine oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm so sorry I think I there would I think there would have been a lot more of the you know Scottish English divide in, yeah, the, in the Ken yeah, Loach version yeah, um, yeah but it's um it's a it's a beautifully looking film it's slightly like Tim Burtony in its look but it's it's beautifully shot by um Robbie Ryan 
um, who's done a lot of stuff that's very good. And um, it's got a really interesting look, like really interesting feel to it. It, it mm. is hard to make comparisons for it. Like I know Frankenstein gets mooted quite a lot and um, there's other stuff that you can compare it to, but it does feel largely like very unique mm. um, and and really distinctive and, and has a quite an odd atmosphere to it. Mm. I think a, a lot, one of the main sources of influence um, visually was actually Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. And you can see that because in, in that version of Dracula, he uses so many little old school filmmaking techniques, like, you know, like matte paintings and rear screen projection, just basically just kind of all the all the tricks in the book. And like the production design in this film is amazing. Like it is because none of it really takes place in in the real world as such because this isn't really because apparently in the book it is framed I've not read the book um, for disclosure but apparently in the book it's more framed as reminiscences of Bella's life but via the men in her life Mm. so it kind of makes sense that yeah all of this is taking place in this in this kind of uh, you know hinterland of uh, this dreamlike world that isn't really reality uh, because it's all you know based on someone's reminiscences and you know so but the, almost the a bit like priscilla then exactly had a very dreamlike quality. indeed and and similar like lots of pastel pastel colors like the, the sequences in in lisbon in particular are just absolutely gorgeous like it's yeah. it's just beautiful some like. of the interiors as well it's like um mm-hmm. I, I, it, it sort of kept surprising me like they'd sort of go through a door and then they'd just be this like incredible sort of like set of chairs and like interior yeah. design and like it was almost just like randomly popping into Barry Lyndon for five minutes yeah, and then yeah. popping out again and or indeed the favourite I or suppose because the there's, there's a lot yeah, of yeah. Um, the stately home stuff and I totally what I totally get what you mean about the uh, the Tim Burton connection as well because yeah. yeah obviously yeah Willem um, Defoe's character in this is is in a sense like um, Vincent Price's in Edward Scissorhands and he's just making I, I think of him know. as like you know the characters from Nightmare Before Christmas mm. and you have Sally and I'm sorry I'm blanking on the name but her creator mm. it's almost like a slightly more benign version of, of that those two characters mm-hmm. um, I think even he kind of resembles they resemble them a little <laughs> to me don't know if that was an influence on their design but I just wanted to pick up on something Ben said, you know, the cinematographer is Robbie Ryan, it's directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, the screenplay is by Tony McNamara, it's based on a book by Alistair Gray, if you've not noticed already, these are all men, (laughs) Uh, even the editor, you know, is another Yorgos, and although the film deals with feminist themes, and I think a lot of women, I think there'll be a lot of women that relate to Bella, I think we'll see a lot of women on social media dressed as Bella, shoving cakes in their mouths and doing the Bella dance. Mm. Um, I think if you film... I'm not saying that men can't make films about women, but a film that's solely created... You know, the key creative positions are all men and it's dealing with women and women's sexuality and Mm. it's feminist themes. I think that's falling down a few steps for me in its credentials. I think one of those roles could have been a woman. I know... Emma produced it. I'm sure she had a lot of say in the film. Um, She's worked with Yorgos before. They seem to have a great relationship. But, yeah, it's just, I think, I went to see Priscilla and I went to see Poor Things and I enjoyed them both. I was laughing all the way through Poor Things. But I do think it could have done with some more input from a woman. And I think a lot of women online have, have said the same things in just in bodily functions and things like that. Like, you can tell a man wrote this. Um, yeah, because I know, I know we spoke 
before the show because we also speak not just on the show. <laughs> we, what? We're, we're also we're also friends. We have conversational fair. Um, but I know that we we spoke beforehand about like some of the discourse around it and yeah. um, to do with like particularly there's a there's a, a section um, where she makes money doing yeah. certain things. The oldest know, profession in the world. Yeah, I know. I know that's been that's been spoken about quite a lot, and and just the idea of using your body as like a way of liberating yourself um I think is an idea that's like i guess contested in certain ways um i think a lot of these things are touched on in the film but mm. sort of almost brushed over mm. and i'm not saying that you can't be a liberated woman and do the things that bella does but again like i said um if you live in a woman's body you would know that some things would be and it's not about the way we're cultured. It's not about the fact that she's a blank canvas. Some things are just painful and she doesn't seem to react to these things as painful. And I'm just like, I, I as a woman just don't buy that. Mm. I don't buy that you have to be told by society that something is painful. I think that's just a physical reaction. You would just be like, ow, that hurts. I, yeah. I still think the film addresses that just very, very briefly. briefly. Yeah, it brushes very over briefly. it. Yeah, I think it's a bit of lip service, I might even <laughs> say. And I did enjoy the film, and I'm not saying, you know, um, it doesn't raise some interesting questions, but I think, you know, it's worth talking about those things. And I think if it came from a team of women, maybe we would be more on board with it. I think, um, I don't, I'm not saying men, I just think it's interesting that when a man makes a, a film about, you know, with feminist themes, the, the main female character is naked quite a lot throughout the film. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's hard for me to kind of digest that when it's coming from an all-male sort of filmmaking team. I think they could have involved some women along the way at least, I think. And I'm not, I'm not like entirely convinced that... I'm not convinced that script gets made by a female mm. director currently as well. I think if they presented that... I think Emerald Fennell would would have a go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying that they can't do it, but I'm saying like I'm not like I think Yorgos Lanthimos is like like has the ability to take that risk now, or like Mm. not even take that risk, but like I don't think that film gets made for that amount of money. Yeah, like and I think that that's almost like another point on that level where there are probably male filmmakers working in the industry now that can make a film like that. And at that level, at that level, when it, I'm not sure if that would be afforded to. Yeah, it's an in- interesting um, th- thought. You could say the same about you know other marginalised groups of people, um, and you know I'm I'm all for men making films about women. Um, I, you know I really enjoyed the last duel, and that dealt with some very serious subject matter, and there was a lot of discourse about that because it was written by two men and it was directed by a man, a male cinematographer again. But there was a female writer on board, at least. There was a third writer who was a woman. And, and you know, again, maybe that is lip service to like, oh, well, we've got a woman, you know, writing some of it. But I I, I connected with that film as well. And I, I felt, I felt it, I could see that, I could see that involvement from a woman's perspective. Um, I don't know... From my personal perspective, I don't think I connected with this film on that level. That doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it, but I just didn't... Yeah, there were definitely things that just didn't 
makes sense to me from my experience. Again, every woman's different. And I, I'm sure there'll be loads of women who said, I loved it. It was feminist. I am Bella Baxter. But I yeah. might not be one of those women. I was going to say as well, um, like, this is this is something that I have read in other places. It was nice to have, like, a reason within a Lanthimos film <laughs> for someone to speak like a Lanthimos character. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, I, I'm, like, for the record, I'm not, like, his biggest fan. Mm. Um, like, I'm, he's got a very distinctive style mm. that doesn't quite do it for me for a few different reasons, which I can get into at another point. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah, I mean, it made a bit more sense on that level than potentially some of his other films yeah, which yeah, yeah. um yeah well that's the thing it is it is very lanthimos isn't it and and i am a massive i'm a big fan because yeah. like I, i'm i i like my weird and um yeah speaking as a man <laughs> I, I i digested this film very well because i think i think yorgos lanthimos is possibly the closest thing that we have at the moment to to another david lynch in that it's really art housey but also just wrapped up in comedy and it's just like and and somehow bafflingly has this has this mainstream appeal and for me this seemed like the ultimate yorgos film because as you say like he's always had this thing where where his characters just speak in this bizarre way that is just again from just from another world and it's especially like this reminded me a lot of um of Dogtooth, in that it's uh, also like about a, a patriarchal figure who's keeping his his um, his family separate from the outside world, and they they end up developing their own language. So it's clearly like uh, it's clearly a theme that he's he's interested in. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> one thing that people have mentioned actually, because we talked about it being a feminist film, but a lot of people have said this is about being neurodiverse. A lot of neurodiverse yes. people have have related to it and so I think maybe that's a different way of viewing I mean Yorgos mm-hmm. hasn't come out and said that himself but that might be a different way of, of viewing this character with the baby brain in the adult body of course that isn't a description of what it is to be neurodiverse but that might be what it what it feels like how people treat you sometimes mm-hmm. as if you're a child yeah, yeah. Um, even though you're an adult mm-hmm. and you might feel out of step there's definitely moments where she just says what she's thinking she's very mm-hmm. direct she's like I mm-hmm. want to go and punch a baby and people have to say tell her that's <laughs> that's not polite that's not how we behave in society yeah, yeah. and you can see that she's really trying she's not intentionally being mm. you know subversive or whatever certainly not in the beginning mm-hmm. she just doesn't know she doesn't know any different she's just following her instincts what's natural to her and mm. she has to, and it is, it makes some of the rules seem silly when you have to explain them. Like, oh, why Why do I have to behave like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's the way it's done. Exactly. And that's that's also one of the things that I made, it, it made me think that it was quite um, a psychedelic film as well in that it does, it's all about the breaking down of societal norms. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, because, yeah, society's, the society's rules are, uh, you know... A bit arbitrary uh, uh, sometimes. Yeah, exactly, quite arbitrary. And um, certainly uh, being a baby brain um, or indeed being on psychedelic drugs definitely <laughs> makes you makes you realise this. <laughs> Maybe I won't have that on the radio version. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I loved all those little like psychedelic flourishes. And as you say, like some of the lines in it, yeah. like that's so the thing. It's just, I, I wasn't expecting this to be 
as I mean, I knew it would be funny, but I wasn't expecting it to be like as funny as it was. Because funnily enough, they were showing the same night that we went to see uh, Poor Things. They were showing the 20th anniversary of um, of Anchorman, and I'd say this film is equally as quotable. Like because I just kept trying to commit these lines to memory, and then another amazing one would come along, and you're just like, oh my goodness! Like most of them coming from Mark Ruffalo's mouth is another reason why oh, he's yeah. having so much fun. And uh, yeah, I just, um, to be honest, like it, uh, this film just kind of, it just hit all the right notes for me. And I just, I, I, I'd be surprised if, I mean, we're only, we're not even at February yet. And I'd be, mm. I'd be surprised if this film wasn't in my top five of the year by the end of the end of the year. It's just like, because it is just. It has had so much buzz about it and yeah. awards buzz as well. Yeah. And it's just, it's like by, like by a distance, my favourite um, Lampfamos film for mm-hmm. sure. So yeah, like I, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, I need to go back and visit a lot of a lot of his stuff, but it, it just was the most most enjoyable because yeah, we were talking about Dogtooth earlier, which I think is a great film, but I find Dogtooth a very uncomfortable experience mm. to watch. But one <laughs> of the most uncomfortable <laughs> films I've ever seen. <laughs> exactly. That's the, that's the one film of his I haven't seen, but I do love Killing of a Snake Deer, mm-hmm. which is which isn't as this comic moments but it's not really a comedy and I like him in that mode I'd like to see him do more of that to be honest but mm. I think the comedy's working for him people love the favourite and poor things yeah so. yeah uh, it's just yeah just so funny and <laughs> it is a very fu- I have to say I was laughing throughout the film it's yeah, very yeah. funny and and half of it is just like the bizarre characters and yeah, the things yeah. they say and you're just like yeah, and just unbelievable the, just the weirdness of it and again as I was you know as I was saying about him being in the same category of, uh, as Lynch, there's just these like, there's this like so Villain Defoe's character, like he has this, there's this little motif with him where he belches and he just he, <laughs> yeah. he releases this just little orb, Orble. little uh, it's like a little bit and that reminded that reminded me of of um of the of the orb in um in Twin Peaks: The Return, if you remember that that yeah, was so yeah. Lynchy and it's just like yeah there's just like, these floating floating little it's orbs of energy or, or something and there's no it's just it's a never, bubble it's never ex- what, liquid well yeah, well even if it's still that's Weird. unusual <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean and then, and then like something will happen and then we'll just randomly sort of go to like a like a pig yeah, yeah. yeah. onto a chicken. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, all those, yeah, oh, okay. these, like, <laughs> yeah, all these little cryptids and stuff. Like, uh, yeah, because yeah, because that's part of it. Because obviously, Fra- Frankenstein, the the references to Frankenstein are um, apparently a lot more um, obvious in the book, as in as in the yeah, that it is explained in the book that it's just like obviously, you know, you're misremembering all this. You're just mm. a big, you're just a big fan of Frankenstein. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about the book is it doesn't give an explanation of why she's the way she's it gives different mm. explanations but but the explanation that they chose in the film isn't necessarily true in the book we don't know it's all different people's perspectives so i think it's interesting that they chose that one and we're like no yeah this mm. happened yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah this is really what happened yeah. But um, I read a letterbox review describing it as Barbie for mentally ill people. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think, yeah, this is my Barbie. Paul yeah, because yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, yeah, because it is a similar, you know, it's um, it's yeah, a, it's like a, a baby brained, a baby brained woman, woman you know. becoming human in a way, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's the uh, that's the arc. Uh, but yeah, I thoroughly recommend you go see it. But yeah. You and I recommend it. watching Priscilla or watch both. Why not? Why not? And I think, it, you know, we can have films like Poor Things. I'm not against it, but I want to, I just want to see more Sophia Coppola's and more, mm. you know, Emerald Finales. And I want to see, you know, I want to see more balance. And then we can watch something 
like poor things just as an alternative view and not as the dominant view of mm. women. Yeah. They're and like completely, yeah, completely off-piste off that. It's like there's there's a lot of, um, like Celine Siama is like another um, one in that, in that vein where like her films are just, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, I love her film. A Portrait of a Lady on Fire is one of my favourite films and it's just so, it is refreshing to me just to see a film like that from a woman's perspective because I think men have made films like that. And I, I was um, talking to Paul about this the other day. Sometimes it can be a bit uncomfortable watching a man's idea of what being a lesbian is. Mm. Um, so it's just it's not it's just refreshing. I'm not saying men can't make films about women, but it's refreshing to see films from a woman's perspective about women. Mm-hmm. It's like a healthy ecology of filmmaking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In an ideal world, we'd all you know be equal and yeah. You know, women would make films about men, and men would make films about women, and it wouldn't. We wouldn't bat an eyelid because it'd mm. just be so normal. Um, but we're not there yet. No, we're still not at a time where the ratio of female to male directors is at anywhere near an equal level. It's uh, it's bonkers, really. But um, but yeah. Yeah. Girl power. (laughs) (laughs) I did suggest that as a name for this episode, (laughs) the girl power episode. (laughs) And now we've just got time for Nadine's roundup of local events. So what's going on, Nadine? Okay, so, yeah, at your local multiplex, films to look out for, All of Us Strangers, I mentioned that earlier, a lot of award buzz on that. The Colour Purple, the musical, will be out as well on the 26th of January. On the 31st of January, the Classic Film Cinema Club will be showing Jaws at St Anne's Club Digbeth. Journey Cinema Club are showing Sunday Bloody Sunday on the 6th of February at the LGBT Centre in Birmingham. Uh, at the Feckinodeon. Woo! Woo! Shout out to the Feckinodeon in Feckenham. They're showing Cinema Paradiso on the 9th of February at Feckenham Village Hall. And we will be showing, and I think we might be sold out, folks. Uh, We're teaming up with Blowwater. They're showing In the Mood for Love at the Hare and Hounds on the 14th of February. You snooze, you lose on them ones, folks. And on the 20th of February, Journey Film Club will be showing Pink Flamingos at the LGBT Centre in Birmingham. And one last plug for Past Lives, 22nd of February at the Cuban Embassy. Again, you snooze your lose on those tickets, folks. Very good. Anything else you want to add as uh, Supreme Overlord of Screen B14, Ben? Um, no. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, 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 actually, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say a massive thank you to everyone who's bought tickets to Screen B14 events mm. over the last year or so. Yeah. Um, it's been amazing. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Well, thanks for leading us, Ben. And thanks for joining us on, on your first episode of the Ben Picture Show. It's been a pleasure. It's been uh, a long time coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm proud to make my debut for the side. Yeah, Rory. Yeah. I don't know if there's going to be a spot left for you, mate. Nah, he's, yeah, as I, as I say, he's dead to us now. <laughs> <laughs> no, we love you, Rory. Um, we, we, we wish you all the best Please with your with back. your film. I'm sure it won't be rubbish. It'll be rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's about all we've got time for on the Brum Picture Show. Thanks for joining us. And do join us again next time where we'll be discussing something else. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Paul. It's goodbye from me, Nadine. And it's goodbye from me, Ben. Goodbye. You have been listening to The Brum Picture Show, a Screen B14 production for Brum Radio. 
Tune in next time for more film fun. And don't forget to email us at pictureshow at brumradio.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Nice. Oh, we got okay. through that eventually. Hey, <laughs> we've only run an hour over. <laughs> Good luck editing uh, that. Too much discourse. Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.